an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello and welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell and I'm your host. This is episode 74. Whether you've listened to every episode up until now or this is your first time listening, I'm so glad you're here. You are in for a real treat today. The two conversations that you're about to hear were originally recorded for a podcast I started for the Secular Student Alliance. Some of you know that I work for the Secular Student Alliance, which is a nonprofit organization that supports secular students around the United States and seeks to empower them to express their secular identity, create welcoming and inclusive communities of meaning and practice, and teaches them to engage in effective activism. I've had the privilege of leading our campus organizing department for the last almost two years, which is really the entirety of our programming. We have about 200 active chapters on high school, college, and university campuses around the United States, including Puerto Rico. If you're interested in learning more about the Secular Student Alliance and supporting us in our work, you can visit our website at secularstudents.org. But the reason I bring that up today is that I begin this conversation with a student of mine, Alana Carter, who was, until a few days ago, the president of our Nazareth College chapter in Rochester, New York. Alana just graduated and is going on to seminary with the goal of being a humanist chaplain. I initially reached out to Alana a couple of months ago because one of my staff members told me about Alana's remarkable story. She has recently experienced a series of tragic losses in rapid succession in her young life that she's going to tell us about. I wanted to know how a young adult managed to cope with these losses as someone who was formerly religious but now does not believe in God. Following my conversation with Alana, you will hear from Garrett Price, a mental health professional in a hospice practice in Idaho. Garrett, too, is a post-theist and was introduced to me by my friend Brian Peck. One of the most common questions I get and one of the most frequent subjects of conversation in the Life After God Facebook group is about dealing with death and grief as a post-theist, someone who used to believe in eternal life and heaven and doesn't anymore. My hope is that these two conversations will help you in your quest to deal with the losses in your own life as a post-theist, an atheist, a humanist, or however you identify. In the Life After God Facebook group, we will be having a conversation about these subjects in the very near future, so you may wish to join us for that. If this podcast has been helpful for you, I'd really appreciate it if you would share it with someone you know who needs to hear these stories. I know many of you are not out about your atheism or secularism and don't feel comfortable sharing this type of content on your social media. But if you are someone who has that freedom to share, I hope you'll do that. I would love to reach a wider audience with these powerful and compelling stories. It would also be awesome if you would search for Life After God on iTunes and write us a review. It actually helps a lot more than you may think. If you have a question or a suggestion or just want to share a story with me, please write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. 
I love hearing from you and I read every email I get. In fact, I've learned so much from the emails that I get and the suggestions that you give me, which very often become the subject of future episodes. If you really want to be a part of this community, helping people find life after God, please help me keep this podcast going by becoming a member, a sustainer, or an investor, by visiting my Patreon page and becoming a regular monthly supporter of the show. Just go to patreon.com slash lifeaftergod and join today. And now, without any further delay, here is my conversation with Alana Carter. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, where you go to school, um, what you're studying, that sort of thing. Alrighty. So originally I'm from uh, Indiana, northern Indiana, right next to the Michigan border. But I currently go to school and live in Rochester, New York. I go to Nazareth College. Um, I'm actually a French and anthropology double major. And then I have double minors in women and gender studies and interfaith studies. Wow. Um, Yeah, it's a lot of work and I'm constantly busy. And um, it's a it's really rewarding too because I get to learn a lot about a lot of different things. Um, I think uh, one person I talked to put it really best, like, "Oh, you're like full liberal arts education." Yeah, you really yeah. are hitting like uh, the social sciences, languages, uh, gender studies, religion. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the whole the whole package. That's a, that's really amazing. I um I work at USC, uh, the University of Southern California, as a humanist chaplain, and I interact with the students there. And they have all these really interesting interdisciplinary majors that they didn't have when I was in college, like uh, philosophy, politics, and art, and stuff like that. And I'm like, wow, how did you get a major like that? I'm so jealous. I want to go back to school. <laughs> yeah, I'm always wondering. Like, I'm probably going to want to go back to school and get another degree one day. Well, this gives you a lot to choose from. So, I mean, you have all those majors and minors and you can uh, maybe pick one to to get a master's degree and go deeper on one of those. But I'm actually I actually just applied to seminary. So, wow. uh, Yeah, I uh, applied to get a master's of divinity with a concentration in a religious chaplaincy. Oh, that's fantastic. at a seminary in Minnesota and I'm really excited to see how that goes. I'll should, I should know within like two to three weeks if I get accepted. So you're at Nazareth college. That's uh, it sounds like a religious college. It used to be actually. So in 1924, the college was founded by the sisters of St. Joseph okay. and it was a Catholic college. It was an all women's Catholic school up until the seventies. And that's when, the sisters saw that if they wanted the college to grow, they're going to have to let it go and let it do its own thing. And that meant incorporating people. And so they petitioned the Catholic church to let it go. And then they also integrated male students. Oh, that's and amazing. So when did today, that happen? It, that was in like 72 or 74, I believe. Okay. Yeah. So early seventies when that happened. And, um, really great history behind the school and the sisters are still kind of involved, but they don't get much of a say in what happens in the college. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They have to lead by influence instead of by fiat, right? They have to, they have to earn it. They really let the college breathe and do its own thing. Obviously um, the college still has like departments of religious studies. They have the center for spirituality for students to come and have uh, their, religious 
perspectives or faith traditions represented um, in clubs and through our interfaith leadership cohort. But really, it's like, it's a very secular school overall. But I, myself, because I am so involved in the Center for Spirituality, I also see how religion has influenced the college as well. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it has. So what is your, tell us a little bit about your religious and spiritual journey. Um, and I mean, you've already said you're going to go to seminary and um, that's maybe not the normal path for uh, our Secular Student Alliance leaders. And yeah. so, yeah, tell us a little <laughs> bit about your your religious and spiritual background and kind of where you are today. So I was raised in a Christian household. My mom was Christian. We never went to church, but like she made it very clear that there was a God that w- that she wanted to go to heaven, that she wanted to see all of her children in heaven. Um, and then around the age of 12, I had a friend and she, I had seen some like stuff in her house that alluded to the fact that she might be religious. And so I made like a little slip of the tongue in front of someone else. And she's like, I don't believe in God. And hmm. I looked at her and I was like, how is that possible? And so that kind of got me questioning about it. And then when I was 14, I started questioning my sexuality a little bit. And it turned into, well, if God loves all of his children, why would he hate me for loving another woman? Or why would he hate people for just loving each other? It just didn't make any sense to me. So I wandered very far away from the Christian faith. I was completely atheist for um, from 14 until about 18 and um, 16 and 17. And there I was very bitterly atheist because I started going to boarding school. And one teacher at that boarding school put it perfectly that religion goes there to die. Oh, wow. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was like um, a lot of uh, STEM students like gifted and talented boarding school. And, um, and I'm not just saying that to toot my own horn there. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I feel you. (laughs) So, um, I kind of had this like feeling of, well, there's definitely not any God. I'm learning all these facts. Like there's definitely no God. And I was really bitter about it too, because a lot of my friends at the time were gay and it just didn't make any sense. So then when I got to Nazareth, I met all these people who showed me that religion didn't have to be this negative thing in someone's life. It could be beautiful. It could be enriching. Um, And you didn't necessarily have to have it either. You could be understanding of it and be welcoming of religion and not technically believe in it. Right. That's right. And so um, my freshman year, that's when I got pretty involved just like meeting people and then I took a break I studied abroad in France for a year and when I came back I was then um the president of the club I was in in freshman year it's called alternative spiritual humanists or we call it ash for short Mm -hmm. and so um they had asked me, Hey, do you want to be one of the co-leaders for Ash your junior year? I said, yeah. So, um, started getting involved with that, starting leading clubs and leading meetings. Um, and also getting involved in 
our new interfaith leadership cohort, which takes people from all of the religious and faith traditions on campus that we know of and brings them together to discuss interfaith topics and to discuss how we as people and as students can bring an interfaith perspective to the classroom, to campus, to the world, really. Mm, That's beautiful. And so then this past year, I had an amazing opportunity to go to the Interfaith Leadership Institute uh, in Chicago for the Interfaith uh, Youth Corps. Right. And so that was an amazing weekend. Got to go to Chicago, meet all these wonderful people my age who are doing these really big impacts in their campuses and their communities through interfaith work. And around this time, I was thinking, well, this is really cool. Like, maybe I could do more. And then, um, so that conference was in August. And then in November, I had the absolute privilege of going to the Parliament of the World's Religions in Toronto. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I had so many friends that were there. I wasn't able to go, but. The environment was just so loving and I've never been in such a rich environment where people all around the world are coming together. You have all these different opinions, but the one message stays the same. And that is that message of interfaith cooperation, interfaith community. And it just, this unity of wanting to better the world and to start with interfaith and with the community they're in just really impacted me. And I, at this conference, I met with some of the representatives from the seminary I applied to. And it was honestly really interesting because this is a very open progressive seminary. They have these art classes. They have like gender and queer study type things going on. And so I just left my name, my number, and my email with them, thinking nothing of it. I knew I wanted to take a gap year. I didn't know what I wanted to do after that gap year. So then when I got the call and they were talking to me about all their different programs, about how they had like the interreligious chaplaincy program, and then also um, they recommended the... Uh, social transformations program for me too and it was amazing because here I have this opportunity to take a religious perspective and also a secular perspective and kind of combine them to not only find myself in my own spirituality but with the chaplaincy Mm. be able to pass that on with an interfaith perspective to other students. How do you see the secular interfacing with the religious and interfaith uh, cooperation and, and dialogue? Obviously I think it depends a lot on the secular student and how they were raised. Cause at parliament, I was able to discuss with some people about why some secular people would even um, like try to resist new communities that were focused around like spirituality. Um, And that does come with like a lot of, well, some of these people who came from religious traditions and then left them, even though there are like rituals and community to spiritual organizations, there's also like the trauma 
of being associated with those rituals. So I think if you were raised that way, there might be some resistance to interfaith. But I think if you have students who are secular students who are very much open and honest with themselves, know where they stand in their faith and their spirituality and want to share that and want to get to know more people that they have that opportunity to grow in the interfaith community. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. So I definitely see that it could be either very much resistance or very much like we want to be involved too. Yeah. And I, I see both of those uh, responses in my sort of everyday work as well. Um, mm-hmm. Some people want nothing to do with religion. Other people more or less sort of accept that religion is a part of people's lives and probably, you know, secular people are not going to uh, extinguish religion from the world. And even if we could, it, it, it probably wouldn't be uh, a good thing, at least not immediately. Um, and, and so think about ways that we can say, um, we have moral ethical concerns as secular people that some people might call spiritual, and that is part of a conversation about wellness and wholeness and and healing and and all the things that come under the the moniker of uh, of interfaith usually in religion. So mm-hmm. it's cool that you're you're entering that space, and I, you know I I feel like the um, secular student alliance chapter that I help out with at USC has kind of a similar vibe. You know, they're definitely uh, not believers in any type of faith or religion, but they're very curious and um, always eager to cooperate and participate with people of other religions that are also not dogmatic and, um, you know, that, that hold their religion in, in really positive ways. Mm-hmm. So you started a, an SSA chapter then at your campus. Is that right? Yeah, Becca. It was actually at the request of the Catholic chaplain at Nazareth that he was like, hey, have you thought about looking up Secular Student Alliance? And I was like, I've heard about it once, Hmm. looked it up and didn't think much of it again. But after that, I was like, okay, maybe there's something there. So I looked it up. I saw that y'all, you guys had some really great resources. Um, and that maybe it could help me because, um, my club Ash, um, we're kind of struggling to hold on to members right now. Maybe I could get some ideas about how to hold interesting meetings, how to recruit people, how to just have a thriving club. Right. Um, and these are resources outside of like what my, um, advisor chaplain and I can think of. So this could be really fun and really cool to do. So I signed us up and I got us registered. And honestly, it's been amazing how much support I've had from uh, Nick, my my person who talks to me a lot. Yeah, your um, organizer, yeah. Yeah, our, my organizer, like how much he's been like, hey, have you tried this? And yeah, I've thought about it, but uh, so I'll put it in the plans for it to come. So yeah, it's been really amazing to have those resources available. And have you found some secular students on campus that have been sort of excited to, to realize that this exists? Yeah. So um, I do have one person. She's really excited. Is It exists. It's just that 
getting to club meetings is a bit hard because she lives off campus. But other than that, like I've we're going to start tabling and getting the word out that we're loud on campus and that we're not going anywhere and that yeah we're ready to take on and have more interesting meetings, more interesting relationships, more interesting conversations. That's awesome. Well, I'm really glad to hear it. I also wanted to ask you about something that you and I were um, corresponding about. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you, you said that you've had some really pretty dramatic um, challenges in your life. You know, up until now, you've been talking so positively about the direction that your life is going and the way that your career, your academic career is advancing. But you've had some pretty serious setbacks recently as well. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, actually about three years ago was um, when my dad went into the hospital. Um, My mom had noticed he was getting sick, but there was just one point where he had to be ambulanced in. And I wake up to about eight missed calls from my mom and I call her back and I was like, hey, what's up? And she's like, dad's in the hospital. Mm. And I had to go to work and it was one of those things where I didn't know quite what to do. So I just went to work and I told my managers, Hey, like my mom just called me dad's, my dad's sick. He's in the hospital. I don't know what's going on. And they were like, okay, if you need to answer your phone, like feel free. So he was in the hospital for about two days when he was released. I kind of had like, Oh, okay. Everything's going to be fine. Mm hmm. And then um, they let me know that he had congestive heart failure. Oh, wow. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And so I thought he was going to be okay. And then all of a sudden he goes back into the hospital and I'm just getting so many calls from my mom, from my sister, my oldest brother, just saying like, hey, like dad's back in the hospital And I ran it to a friend's room sobbing. I was like, I don't know what's going on because no one's telling me anything. Wow. Um, I made the decision that I would make the nine-hour drive back to Indiana the next morning. And so get to Indiana and find out that dad's dying. Mm. And I... Again, that ton of bricks just hit me again. I had grown up knowing this man, this invincible man, and all of a sudden he's this fragile being in a hospital bed in a medically induced coma, and they don't know if they're going to be able to wake him up. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot to process. (laughs) Yeah. So I had emailed all of my professors that I was going to try to keep up on schoolwork, but I didn't know when I was going to be back. I was spending every day I could in the hospital during visiting hours. Um. The we tried waking him up about three times while I was there, and then that last time, had he not woken up, we would have started measures on pulling the plug. Um, luckily for us, he woke up and um, he was in the hospital another week. Um, by the time I was sure that he was going to be discharged, I made the nine hour drive back to New York. Um, I made some appointments with some counselors, like career counselors, academic advisors, um, just asking them, like, I have 
my dad's dying right now. Like mm-hmm. how, how do mm-hmm. I proceed with this? I don't know if I want to take a gap year. I don't know if I want to, um, study abroad because the next year I was supposed to be studying abroad in France. And the third option was, I don't know if I want to stay in college, but just postpone my study abroad. And so I was talking with my French advisor. I was talking with my anthropology advisor. I was talking with a separate academic advisor about my options. And I was also talking to family and my mom said, I'll support you no matter what you do. Uh, what a gift. My my aunt told me that I should just continue on with my education, that anything that would happen, she would make sure my mom was taken care of so I wouldn't have to drop out of school. Um, so I made the decision, finally, that I would study abroad, um, continue with those plans. Um, so I made it home on May 2nd. Dad was still... He was on oxygen. He was kind of, he was fragile, but he was moving around. He was able to like take short trips to the store. Um, He was able to cook small meals. So I was kind of hopeful that maybe he had a few months left. And then on May 21st, he passed away and at home um, I was at work. I had made the conscientious decision that I did not want to be at home when he passed away. Mm -hmm. And so my mom had this gut feeling that that day was going to be the day, just this really big gut feeling. And so she told me to say my goodbyes before I went to work. Mm. And so about an hour into my shift, um, my COS pulls me aside and she's like, Hey, what are your numbers to your drawer? I gave them to her, didn't think nothing of it. I was completely oblivious. I was, nothing was kind of responding. Oh, like, oh, so she's pulling my drawer. Something must have happened. It was like, oh, why are you pulling my drawer type Mm -hmm. thing? Yeah. And so she said, follow me. And she took me to the manager's office. And I was in the office sobbing for about a good 30 minutes before I was able to make the drive home and the whole way home. I was cussing out God saying, why the fuck would you do this to me? Yeah. Um, what, like what? <laughs> and so I got home and his body was still there and everyone's sobbing. I just made the very rushed walk to my room to lay down I just didn't want to be around anybody. Of course, yeah. And then it didn't help that family members kept trying to come in to get my support or to give me support, even though I just wanted to kind of be alone. And it was a hard day. <laughs> like, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Losing, losing a parent when you're 19 is one of the hardest things I could have ever gone through. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. I I was really stunned there for a moment. It was like, oh, dad's car is still in the driveway. He's still here. Mm. And then walk in and realizing, no, he's not. And that lasted for a couple of days before reality just kind of accepted and like, oh, he's... He's gone. 
like yeah. that I knew, but like the reflex was gone that, Oh, he's here. Yep. Um, yeah. And the so fin- the finality of it is hard for our brains to comprehend. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, I, after the funeral, it was okay. So this is very much like I returned to real life now. Um, there's nothing really I can do more about him passing. There's nothing more I can do about trying to find finality to it because I knew it was coming for about two months at that point. So I should try my best to like get back in the swing of things, get back to my job, get back to just trying to be me. And then two weeks before I left for France, my mom's mom died. So that death didn't shock me as much. Right. Yeah. I I wasn't particularly close with her and, but she was still like one of those parts of my life that I thought would never not be there. And so it was kind of more of a shock that she had passed for me just because the fact that she had inexplicably escaped death so many times before she had quadruple bypass surgery. She had all these different things that should have killed her years before, but like she survived and all of a sudden she's not here. Right. And so funeral was held like exactly a week before I left. And so like that death was kind of easier for me to get over, not get over so much, but to just process because it was, I wasn't close with her. Right. It was just one of those things. And then about three weeks into being in France. So about a month and a week after my grandma had passed, my mom's sister passed. Oh my. Wow. And that was completely out of the blue. I was shocked. I was not expecting her. And she was young. She was like in her early forties and she just passed away. And so that was a shock, but again, I wasn't close with her. This was, um, this was more like an hour of shock and then realizing, okay, I'll, I'll be okay. Like this is just another stage in life. So then fast forward to January of 2017. And that's when my mom said my cat was dying. Oh my. And this, um, so we're at death number three now. And this poor cat, like she, she was in kidney failure. There wasn't much my mom could do anymore. So kitty ended up dying peacefully at home. Hmm. Um, warm in a bathroom and on top of a vent on a nice comfy bed but it was still really hard because it was two days before my birthday this was the cat I grew up with like we got her when I was seven. Oh wow yeah your yeah your most formative <laughs> years of your life yeah so this cat was like my best friend I called her sissy all the time because she was like my little sister she it was she was one of those cats where she had this big bold personality that you didn't know unless you were like in her in crowd right so <laughs> when she passed away i was sobbing and my host mom she's she was a costa rican lady and she just did not understand why i was crying over a pet 
<laughs> I was sitting there trying to explain through these sobs in French, like, no, this cat was more than a cat. She was family. And then she finally it kind of clicked and she was like, yeah, I kind of relate. I had a dog that I really liked one time. <laughs> <laughs> really liked. Yeah. You're like, yeah, this is more than that. <laughs> so oh, it was like, okay, I guess we're going with this. And I, it, and I think that it didn't really hit me that she was gone until I made it home. Um, and I was like looking for a greeting and I only got the other cat and I realized, oh, Kitty's gone too. And that that really hurt because I felt I felt guilty because I was in France. Right. I didn't get to see her. She had like passed away in the bathroom. Luck luckily like the, my mom made her as comfortable as she could during those last moments. I remember so, losing a cat when I was about seven or eight years old and it was, yeah. I oh mean, Lord. At, at that point. I couldn't imagine yeah. being seven or eight and losing a cat. Yeah. She was really sick and my mom was like having to force pills down her throat in order, Aww. in order for her to take her medicine. And it was an epic struggle every time she had to take her medicine. But yeah, it, you know, losing a pet, it's, you know, a significant part of your life. It's something that you love, a living thing that you loved, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not quite the same as losing a, a family member that's a human, but it's it's up there. Yeah, it's like not human, but still family type thing. Sure. Mm-hmm. So how have you managed to, um, like, how have you processed these things as a secular person? Because I know you have a, it sounds to me like you have a kind of secular spirituality Um, and you've, but you've been introduced to some pretty, um, sort of grown up experiences at a really young age as a teenager, even, Mm -hmm. um, you know, every one of us has to face the inevitability of death, uh, first usually with people we love and then with ourselves, but usually it comes much later in life. You know, we're Mm -hmm. in our mid middle years or later that we start to lose the people we really love and care about. And, uh, for you, it happened, it happened quite early, um, and what have you what have you learned from that and what have you how have you been able to go through that experience as someone who's secular? I think the biggest thing I did is I just threw myself into work. I didn't quite know at the time how my spiritual like at the time of my dad's passing especially I didn't know that my spirituality could come through to help me grieve or to give process to grieving. But it has forced me to kind of face my own mortality and kind of like, okay, so dad's passed away, grandma's passed away, my aunt's passed away, my cat's passed away. Like, how how do I process this? And I, there's a bit of, a lot of my spirituality is focused a lot on love. And the energy you put into the world is the energy that you get out of it. Hmm. And so I've tried, especially with my dad, I've tried reminding myself, well, he's put, he put a lot of effort into raising me. He put a lot of effort into making sure his family was taken care of. He put a lot of effort into all of this. So 
I think the best way to honor him would be to put a lot of my own effort into what I do and into what I try to become, especially like coming up on graduation in May, like this is a big milestone he will never be here for. How do I process this? And so a lot of what I try to do is I try to put a lot of love into the world and I try to honor that those memories by not putting them up on a pedestal so much, but talking lovingly of them. Right. And showing like, hey, yeah, they had good parts. They had bad parts. We're all human. It's fine, but it's okay to miss them. And I have moments where it's just me in my room and I'm like, oh, I really miss dad. Hmm. And sometimes it is kind of weird and awkward and kind of lonely thing trying to this is what my therapist would say like the judgmental mind um Mm -hmm. of well someone of the christian faith would just say oh you're gonna see him in heaven again and but me as a secular person it's like well i don't know what's happening on the other side there Mm mm-hmm yeah, that's wisdom from, you know, far beyond your years. I, I really appreciate that. And um, and I, I think people listening will um, can take a lot of strength from that. And I, I know that as I've counseled with people who have gone through tremendous loss, uh, including members of my own family and my own personal experiences of, of loss, nothing uh, on the scale of what, what you've experienced, but um, I, I think some of the things that you've said here really resonate with me and, and I think will resonate with a lot of people. Um, I really appreciate you sharing. I know it's, um, you know, really intimate details of your, of your life and to Mm -hmm. to open yourself up takes courage to do that. And I I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I like to talk about things. I became an open book around junior year (laughs) of high school (laughs) Mm. where I realized that talking about things and is kind of like one of the better ways for me to process them. Yeah. And so like being able to come on here and talk with you not only helps me process what's happened, but also I hope to give someone else like, well, I don't have to rely on one sort of way to grieve. There are different ways and there are different stages of grief. Right. And it's just one of those things that I, yeah, that is, it is a really hard thing to share, but I honestly don't think I'd have it any other way. Like I want to be able to share with people. Yeah. My dad died and it sucked, but I would not be the person I am today if it weren't for it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Alana. And I, I really, again, appreciate you, you know, opening your life to share with us and, and thank you for everything you're doing on your campus um, to, I guess, as you said, like, what, how did you put it? It was so perfect. You said something like putting love into the world or how did you say it? I believe you get what you get, what you put out. So like I try to put a lot of love out into the world. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's what you've done here today and it really comes through. So thank you and uh, good luck with everything that you're, you're working on. It sounds like you have some exciting things ahead. Thank you so much for having me. 
And joining me now is Garrett Price, a licensed professional counselor working in end-of-life care uh, in his home state of Idaho. Thanks so much for being on the Secular Student Life podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So I've worked in the hospice field for the past about 12 years, and during that time I've played a number of different roles. Um, Currently I work in kind of the grief and bereavement side, so I largely work with um, family members of people who have died and just to help them to work through the mourning process. Um, And yeah, so that's, that's my practice. I see clients on a weekly basis. So can you just give us a sense, I know this is a big question to ask you to handle in a minute or two, but what's going on in grief when we're experiencing grief? Yeah, that's, that, that is a really big question. Um, but if I were to kind of drill it down a little bit, you know, when I think about grief, I think it's important to have a definition of what it is. And grief is our response to loss. And and there's another part that comes along with grief, and that's the mourning process. And the mourning process really has to do with the way that we're going to integrate the loss. Hmm. And we kind of bounce back and forth between these two experiences where we're feeling the loss heavily in our grief. And then we're working to integrate what this loss is going to mean for our life in the mourning process. And what the way I like to think about it, this is kind of a popular way or it's becoming popular to think about it is that we all have kind of after a loss, we all have a mourning box. And inside of this box, there is a pain button. And initially, as we start into this process, the grief is like a giant ball inside of this box. And it's constantly pressing that button. Hmm. And so we're in deep pain. And then as we work with our grief and we learn to process these feelings and we start to make meaning out of this loss, this ball starts to get smaller and smaller, but as it gets smaller, it starts to bounce around this box and it bounce around periodically. It still hits that pain button hmm. and, and we can make that ball smaller and smaller and smaller over time, but periodically it's still going to find a way to hit that pain button. So like myself, I had a significant loss 15 years ago and still there are times where that ball will strike that pain button. And it can be kind of out of nowhere, or it can be triggered by certain times of the year, um, certain memories. And so that's kind of, in a way, I think a good metaphor for what the experience of grief and mourning is like. I think it's a fantastic metaphor. In fact, it's working for me right now. I'm instant, probably others listening are instantly thinking about how that applies in their own life. And um, yeah, that's, that's really helpful. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the role um, that religion plays in all of this, in in the experience of loss and in the grieving and mourning process. We here at the Secular Student Alliance work with non-religious students on mostly college campuses, some high school campuses, and and I'm especially interested in how secular students might um, think about the grieving process if they're either non-religious or post-religious. Uh, and what kind of role in your experience working with clients does religion plays? Yeah, religion. Uh, I come from a, a religious background. At one time, I was a minister, and now <laughs> uh, I've gone through my own kind of deconstruction process. And so, when you ask that question, it's kind of it's personal because with my loss, um, at one point, I made meaning out of it through a religious lens. Right. 
And then as I went through deconstruction, I had to kind of grapple with, okay, what does this loss mean now that I don't maybe hold a traditional view of heaven? So I think that religion helps us to, like those of us who have a, a formed religion, um, are able to kind of use that to grapple with a sense of meaning out of this loss. And so those of us then who might hold life differently um, are going to start to grapple with that also. So part of what we do in the grieving process, there's this four task model that we work with. And one of those tasks is how to continue bonds with the person we've lost. And I, and I often find that when a person doesn't have a, a religion, um, they can kind of struggle with that. How do they continue bonds with the person that they've lost? Hmm. Um, and one of, one of the mechanisms that I like, and I, I, I stole this from Ram Dass, is Ram Dass talks about how um, every person that we encounter and that we spend time with is like a key. And that key actually is it kind of stores the memory of that person inside of our brains. And so I'll actually use neuroscience yeah. um, with folks that don't have a religion to talk about the fact that the person that you have lost has impacted your, your, your neurobiology. And that while at times, like just by recalling the memory of them, you're actually lighting up the neural pathways in your brain, just in the same exact way as being with them. And so wow. in that way, this person is always with you because of the way they've infected your neuro, your neurobiology. And so I'll actually use processes like EMDR and these others to kind of help to reinforce that with them. Wow. To kind of build up that neural pathway. Um, and so that, that can kind of help, I think. And then I'll even use um, just, I, I, we, I like to use uh, guided imagery to help a person build that up. And for most of us, if we're honest, like if I think about um, some of the losses I've had in my life, the, the people that have been most significant, if I really sit and kind of imagine sitting with them, I can fill in the conversation. I, I, I know them well enough. They are stored well enough in my neurobiology that when I talk to them, I can get a sense of how they would actually respond to me. And if we can create space like that for them, we can always continue the bonds with them going forward. And so part of it is just permission giving, because that can seem kind of outside of our normal experience to kind of practice that way. So giving people permission to carry people with them in an imaginative way that maybe has absolutely nothing to do with religion, but has a lot to do with their neurobiology. I think that's really helpful. And, and, I mean, it certainly resonates with me. And when I bring this up with a person, I'll tell them, like, if I hooked you up to a brain scanner and we had you ride a bicycle and then I had you just sit here and on the brain, same brain scanner, I just had you imagine riding a bicycle. We would see the exact same areas of your brain light up because hmm. the brain doesn't really distinguish between imagination and, and that, that actuality. And so when we talk about grief and, and that ability to continue bonds, using imagery, using our, our memories, right, uh, of these people is a way to always have them with us. That's fantastic. Well, I love that. We This is so um, prescient. We're recording on March 1st, and um, just yesterday we got the news that one of our campus chapters um, 
there was a, a suicide on their campus,、mm-hmm. and our student group, a couple of the students in our student group, were close friends with the young man who died, and、um, and so yesterday we were a few of us in the office were just messaging back and forth with the, the students and just kind of you know letting them know that we were here for them and that we were thinking of them and and、um, available if they needed to to reach out and talk and. What do you say when when someone tells you something like that, and you don't really have, you can't say, "Well, I'll pray for you," or you're not thinking to yourself. I mean, even when I was a Christian, I thought the whole, you know, they're in a better place kind of thing was pretty <laughs> pretty cruel、uh, thing right, to, to see.、Right. But certainly, we're not going to say something like that. What is what is a way or two that that the the loved ones can be supportive and Uh, either verbally or non-verbally, with people that are going through through a grief experience like that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think for those people that are going to be present to this person, and I think that that's what it's about, right?、Um, I think it's less about what we say and, and much more about the way we are with people. And so, a piece of advice for those who are going to be present, and and that is the mechanism is our presence. How are how are we going to be with These people.、Um, so there's no fixing, there's no saving, and there's no setting this person straight.、Mm-hmm. Right. And so instead, and in, when we're sitting with them, it, it's creating space for to help them to start to name the way they feel about this. And our response to that is just to almost echo it back. So I hear you. You're saying this is sad. Yeah, this is sad. There's 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 no answers for this. There's no reason for this, and just we're kind of sitting in.、Um, I have a friend who calls this the tragic gap,、mm. this space between、um, what was and then what's going to become out of this experience. And inside of the tragic gap is just this compassionate silence that we can offer to just be with them,、mm. right? To be the type of person that. Is not going to try to answer it or solve it for them, but it's going to be there to help listen them through it as they start to make sense out of it themselves. And every human person has that capacity, but oftentimes we don't. We're not given the space to do it, right? Yeah.、Um, and so, in inside of in religion again, there sometimes there's mechanisms to give us that kind of space. And so,、uh, when that becomes a void in a person's life. Creating that space for them, right?、Mm. How do we do a secular vigil for them? How、yeah. do we kind of create that kind of space for them to start into this mourning process? I know the Jewish community has that beautiful tradition of of sitting shiva, you know, to just and it really literally is just sitting with the person. Maybe you bring、yeah. some food and and you eat or whatever, but you're also just present. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that that so and that ability to start like just just to start to get them to talk、um, again going back to kind of neurobiology when if a person can start to name it they can start to kind of claim it、mm. in their experience and so and that's really what we're hoping for is that just sitting with them even if they are going to lament how unfair this is or even if they move into anger it's it's starting the process. And, it, and it's starting to help their brain make sense out of this moment because what's happened, right, is is they've gone from one reality to an augmented reality instantaneously,、mm. 
through the loss. And that's created a schism in this person's brain, a, a trauma point in the brain. And the brain has to recoup from that. And no kind of advice or words of wisdom are really going to land in that space hmm. as much as presence that will help that person work through that trauma experience. Garrett, that's so helpful. I, I, and I'm just really just um, soaking it up. You know, those students that have gone through this experience, also, they can, they're, they're always trained professionals in, in their um, communities that we can uh, connect them to. So if you want to reach out to me and just let me know their area, I can help connect them to those. Well, thank you again for, for being here and um, for sharing your thoughts with us. It's, it's been really, really helpful. Absolutely. Thank you. I really hope you made it this far because I have to say the things that Garrett shared there at the end have been life-changing for me and those that I've shared it with. I'd love to hear from you about your experience of grief and loss and how you've managed to cope with these losses as a secular person, as a humanist, as an atheist, but especially as someone who was formerly religious. If you've been religious in the past and aren't anymore, tell me how you've managed to cope with the grief and loss in your life. Our community is really struggling to understand this specific issue, and I hope you'll help us all by sharing that story with us. If you want to be engaged with this community at a deeper level, I'd invite you to join our Facebook group for members. Please go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod and join at the member level, which is just $5 a month. You'll receive an invitation from me to join our private Facebook group and be invited to other members-only events that we hold from time to time. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you, really thank you, for spending this hour with me. I look forward to sharing with you my next conversation, which is with Lloyd Evans, a former Jehovah's Witness, about his departure from the church and his work to help other JWs get free. Until then, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. What do you think happens when we die, Keanu Reeves? I know that the ones who love us will miss us.